Hello, George. Hello, Mike. Welcome back to the Field Craft Survival Podcast. Hey, I am totally stoked about our next sponsors. These podcasts are brought to you by Killcliff, killcliff.com, natural drinks with killer taste. We're big on health and wellness and fitness here at the dojo, getting our jujitsu on. We do combatas. We do all kinds of uh, uh, stuff when it comes to uh, taking care of ourselves and optimizing our bodies and our minds for health and wellness, but most importantly, preparedness. When it comes to energy drinks, you could buy a whole bunch of energy drinks that have a whole bunch of crap in them. Um, we've done a lot of research. We're big fans of Kill Cliff, not only because they have the Ignite, the Endure, and the Recover, so different versions of their energy drinks depending on the level or the phase of your workout, uh, which is kind of full spectrum, um, but also the fact that it's quick, clean energy uh, without all the garbage, without all the preservatives and the crap that you typically see in energy drinks. Uh, what's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite Ignite flavor? My favorite Ignite one is um, is the cherry limeade. Ooh, that's my favorite too. I like that one. Uh, the other day when Chad Robichaud was here, we were rolling, and I was getting my butt handed to me. Uh, I was big on that sustain endurance, that endure, endure. Yeah, you needed that. I bro, I needed it so bad. It's a bad day. That's all it was. <laughs> that's all it was. But I, I like the variety packs because you get that berry punch, the lemon lime, that mm-hmm. orange mist. Uh, what's the coolest thing about Kill Cliff, um, besides the fact that they have awesome energy drinks, um, is the fact that uh, their goal right now is to march to one million, and uh, they want to achieve the goal of raising a million dollars for the Navy SEAL Foundation. And you, you know a little bit about the foundation. Yeah, so that the foundation was established in 2000, and what it is is basically it's a resolute cornerstone for the Navy special warfare community and their families. So, you know, you talk about they're there to support families in times of their need if they're going through something. Um, their specialized programs that they have, they, they, they map back directly to the U.S. Uh, special Operations Command directive and what it is is like it want to preserve the force you know so that when you talk about preserving the force you're talking about not only the service member but their families as well because mm. you know you think about you got to take care of the families especially when you know you have these guys downrange guys and gals downrange deployed away from their families you want to make sure you take care of the, the loved ones back in the rear so they have a lot of uh, a, lot, a lot of programs and just a lot of things that support the, the the, the special operations community as a whole. So Yeah, developed by a U.S. Navy SEAL to get back to the military services, killcliff.com. If you have to make an option, consumers, we have choices. Uh, make good choices. Choose Killcliff. Uh, this podcast is also sponsored by triarchsystems.com. I actually pulled the plug. I'm building a custom uh, carbine with, kill, with uh, not Killcliff. They don't do custom carbines <laughs> yet. Yet. Uh, but I'm building a custom carbine with triarchsystems.com, and I heard you are as well. Yes, I am. And uh, what are your options? What barrel length did you go with? I went with the 13.5 and with the folding stock. So I had to make a few modifications. They called me. And oh, because you couldn't get a short barrel. You yeah. had to do the, the compliance. Right. And they told me, they said, you know, this is, you're, if you're getting the folder, you can't have, I think, I guess we I, we checked something when I was building it. There was a checklist. And they're like, well, we can't use that. And they, and I, they called me personally and was like, hey, we're going to do it this way. And it just, they helped mm-hmm. me out through the process. It's my kind of first time building a carbine from the yeah, ground up. Garbine. So uh, they're very, very good customer service. If you want to, if you want to call them, I mean, they're, they're right there. They have all the information. So they're they're hooking it up right now, and I'm, yeah, I'm that's pretty excited. A, that's my favorite thing about TriarchSystems.com is not just the fact that you can get like a a, a functional, I mean, durable 
weapon system for defense, for sport shooting, for whatever you're you're doing. Um, but the fact that they're such good people, they're patriots, oh, yeah. they're from Texas, uh, they just do good stuff in the community. There's a whole bunch of things that um, people don't talk about because they don't advertise the fact that they take care of veterans. They do all mm-hmm. kinds of cool stuff uh, on the back end. But yeah, if you're going to support a business, look, the AR-15 uh, pistol custom gun um, business is completely saturated, but Triarch Systems stands apart. Make sure you guys use Philcraft on checkout to save TriarchSystems.com. Also, hey guys, we uh, we caught up with Remy. This was a uh, a podcast that we did up at Mighty Oaks Foundation Studio. Man, uh, Remy's an amazing man with an amazing story. Uh, his book is coming out soon. Uh, also, a uh, big shout out to Mighty Oaks Foundation for allowing us to use their studio. Uh, big shout out to Chad and to Mike and all the guys at Mighty Oaks who make uh, who made this particular podcast. Uh, possible, but also for what they do and giving back um, to veterans suffering from PTS and and actually offering comprehensive care instead of like you know just this uh, temporary solution to uh, long term problems. So we appreciate the guys at Monty Oaks, and we also also uh, um, had a great time catching up with Remy and hearing a story. I mean, from the Bronx, um, the streets of New York, um, as an African American going into the Navy, struggling through buds, going back a couple times, and then being successful. And now he's in Hollywood. I mean, dude, the, oh, yeah. he's doing everything. Yes, he is. A very nice guy, too. I mean, you reach out to him, he'll hit you back with a message, and just very personal guy. And R- Really just, down to earth. Yeah, really down to earth. For all that he's accomplished. Um, yep. Yeah, I, yeah, it's an amazing podcast, and I hope you guys enjoy. And, yeah, let's kick it off. Awesome, man. We're live at the Mighty Oaks studio. Uh, big shout out to Chad Robichaud for hooking it up with the team. Um, Michael on the ones and twos, that's what he's doing, uh, for orchestrating this. And I appreciate uh, Remy. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks man. for having me, I, brother. I appreciate being here, brother. Yes, thank sir. you. Uh, so, look, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with you because you have so much uh impactful things so many impactful things going yeah, on yeah and that are going to be in my eyes so substantial for people's education mm-hmm. uh you know telling your story for helping people I, let's start from the beginning yeah because yeah. you know the beginning the origins of your story are are uh very important to lay the the, the foundation for where you're at today because you know, if you haven't been to Africa yeah, yeah. and and you don't know the strife, and we've talked about it before on podcast, if you grow up in Africa, yeah. you have a different understanding in life. Oh, absolutely. That your perspective <laughs> is completely different. Mm. And then all the way from, you know, the streets of the Bronx to being a Navy SEAL to where you're at in your life today, uh, let's set the foundation talk about from the beginning. Well, how, how did you uh, come about? Yeah, so I think, you know, my, my beginning really starts with my dad. My dad, uh, he was he was a firstborn son to my grandfather. My mm-hmm. grandfather was a chief in, 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 um, in Nigerian culture, along with a lot of other uh, cultures in Africa. We don't refer to royalty as king, queen, prince, duchess, that sort of thing. We refer to, to royalty as, as, as chief. And so he was chief Ade, bio Ade Leke, and Ade Leke means the crown is above. So my father was the firstborn son of my grandfather who had like seven, eight wives. Um, wow. So he was, in, in that kind of culture, that, yeah. I mean, it's a hierarchy, right? Oh, yeah. And so yeah. he's at the top of the food chain. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, 
uh, his my grandfather died when my dad was eight years old. Wow. So my so my grandmother uh, relocated my my father to the to the south of Nigeria. And at the time, there were missionaries who had come to the south of Nigeria, and they weren't just teaching the Bible, but they were also teaching like English, um, literature, uh, science, math, all the things that a lot of the Nigerians in the north weren't getting. Mm -hmm. um, and so my dad, he took to, to, to learning, and the missionaries realized that this guy was a savant because he could memorize mm. all kinds of things like on a whim. And long story short, he ended up getting a full-ride scholarship to start to study uh, engineering in London. So he studied wow. engineering, got his, his master's in architecture as well as engineering, and then he went on to start all of these different businesses. Um, he was one of the first, he was the first black man on the, um, on the board of the World Trade Center. Uh, he was one of the first black guys on the on the board of the uh, planning council in Britain. I mean, oh. this guy was just he was just large, and all of his success led to great wealth. And he met my mom in the states, and after my mom and him met, my mom moved to, back to Nigeria with him, and I was born, and my brother was born, and I was essentially born into wealth. I was born into luxury. We didn't have a car. We had cars. We didn't have a nanny. We had nannies. We didn't live in the house. We lived on a compound. We traveled all over the world, mm -hmm. ate the finest food. My father would throw lavish parties where he would host you know, expats and just, just have these amazing events. And he also loved art, and he would collect art. And so me and my brother were exposed to all of these things at a very, very young age. Um, but being Nigeria being what it was at the time and even what it is uh, to a certain extent today, there was a lot of corruption yeah, uh, yeah. within the government. And so the Nigeria, my dad had built one of the first man-made islands in the world that's known as the Banana Island and exists to this day. Mm -hmm. And he had invested millions and millions of dollars in this project. He had signed contracts with McDonald's, Disney, uh, Marks and Spence, all of these different outlets that were gonna be on this island. And essentially mm -hmm. the island was supposed to be a beacon for Nigeria, you know, because it's this, this stereotype usually, and it's, it's true to a certain extent that, that you know, Africa is this, this you know, nomadic, um, place where you know Africans are uneducated and, and, and they don't do certain things pro uh, properly and, and you know they, they don't have the sense to build and in some places you know you do have this, these societies that are not up to speed with modern mm -hmm. culture but uh, my dad wanted to kind of split that stereotype on his head and that's mm -hmm. why his, his plan to build was to build this the, the plan behind that island was to do that and so he invested all his money in Ireland. The Nigerian government decided one day, hey, you can't have this. One man can't have all of this power. One man can't have all of this money. And they stripped it from him. And within days, my dad died. And when he died, my mother, my brother, and I went from rich, from having absolutely everything, to nothing because all of his assets were wrapped up in this island. Mm -hmm. um, and my mom had to make a decision. Do I raise my kids here in Africa? Or do I bring my kids back to the States? And she chose to... Because you guys were all dual citizens. We, because your, well, mom, your mom was American. Yeah, well, I wasn't. Me and my brother, it's funny. My mom and my dad, they were just so strategic. My dad didn't want us to have Nigerian citizenship. Oh, he wow. just wanted us to have American citizenship just mm -hmm. in case we as kids wanted to get into politics in the future. My, fa my father was like, he would think so far ahead. Ooh. And the so, engineer mind, though, he's, he's oh, analyzing yeah. every... Yeah. Very analytical, very mm -hmm. analytical. And I think that's where I get get my, you know my, my mind from, from mm -hmm. my dad genetically um, so so she she pulled us out of out of Nigeria and and that's where I kind of that's where where life really really got hard for us but that's a quick snapshot of the African beginning yeah you know when I when I when I hear that story I've, I've been to Nigeria I, I spent some time in Niger for, for a period of time right above it and people don't realize that Nigeria is a very wealthy country it is oil, I, I, oil. yeah because yeah. the oil yeah. and, and I want to say it's one of the most uh, wealthy countries in Africa yeah. and and 
they, what they also don't realize is the size of Nigeria yeah. and the difference in demographic from south to north because of the terrain. Yeah. Uh, you, you have a completely change of terrain, and the north is not like the south. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, you, you described, you know, getting back to your dad about uh, him losing um, the land. Like, they confiscated his land initially, right? And then yes. they're like, hey, uh, and your father's, you know, he's protesting, he's, yeah. he's suing, he's trying to figure out why are you doing this? Yeah. And then they all, he says, hey, there's a lagoon here, right? Which is yeah, where the yeah, lake so yeah, go, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, my, so my dad brought this, bought this, this massive property. It was called Marico. Mm-hmm. And it still exists to this day. And, and it was a landfill to a certain extent. It was, it, was, it was worthless. But my dad, he had this vision. Mm-hmm. He saw something. He was like, I could turn that nothing into something. And so he uh, bought the project, pro- bought the property, started doing engineering on the property. And then one day the, the um, federal government said, you can't have this. And my dad is like, what? I, I paid millions of dollars for this. And he said, well, you can't have it. So my dad, this is in the 1970s, way before he met my mom. So he ended up going to court and fighting the Nigerian government for like 10 years. Yeah, yeah. And finally, after 10 years, um, my dad won the case. But they, and they said, what do you want? Do you want your money back? Like, you tell us what you want. And my dad said, I want the lagoon. I want water. And one of the reasons why he chose the water was because in his mind, there was never any land on there. So the ne- Nigerian government can never come and say that land belonged to us they before you got it. there. They because did it. Yeah. it was just weird because it was just water. So again, yeah. this goes back to his his genius mind. He figured that this you can't take something from me that never existed. Mm-hmm. You know, and so so he uh that's when he hired the the Dutch dredging company to, to kind of dredge this lagoon and, and land began to form. And as land formed and as it got bigger and bigger and bigger, there they were whispers of, of jealousy. There were whispers of this man can't have mm. this. He outsmarted us. How is he able to do this? And then before you know it, once the land got to a certain state, once the island got to a certain state where it was almost inhabitable, they took it. Mm. And, and, and it's frustrating because you see the, you see the, the cunningness in it because they could have took it before before he even hired the dredging they company. wanted him to build it up they wanted it to be built mm-hmm. up built up without spending the money so mm-hmm. that now they can have it they could do the deals as yeah. well yeah and we're still in court i mean the court case is still open really um they offered my half brother um millions of dollars uh, i want to say about two three years ago um, for, for and, you know, not because they, they're not going to give the, the islands worth too much, worth billions of dollars. So it's still now. there. It's still there. It's, and it's yeah, built, been built on Google Banana Island. Oh yeah, they call it Billionaires Island now because billionaires, the, the richest African in the world, Dan Goti. Yeah, he has a he has a mansion on on Banana Island. Um, so it's still there to it's this still day. Still in litigation, going it's still through in the court. It's still in court. My brother, he they offered him, you know couple million dollars and he said no it's worth more than that so the case the case file is still open it's lawyers on the case my half brother is actually a lawyer as well so we'll see what happens you know if, if we get in and we win who knows i might end up a billionaire <laughs> well, yeah. you know something it's interesting we talked about before too is the fact that your dad passed away yeah. a few days after, after this whole thing transpired. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh what was the actual cause of death versus what you guys think that happened yeah so my dad was he was bitten by a dog that had rabies and everything. And when you look at the entire situation, I, there's a lot of shadiness behind it. Um, a dog just happened to be 
in his area. When he stepped out of his house, the dog ran up to him, attacked him, um, uh, bit him. Dog had rabies. Uh, he went to the hospital. Uh, healthcare system is not the best in Nigeria. As a yeah. matter of fact, when, when Niger wealthy Nigerians get sick or anything happens, they usually fly to the UK mm -hmm. or fly to the US. And traditionally, that's what my dad did. Mm -hmm. um, but he was in this case, he was in this heated battle. Mm -hmm. He couldn't leave. And that's one thing, when he told my mom, he's, he told my mom, I can't leave. I need to, if I leave, we'll lose. Yeah, and yeah. so he didn't leave. He got issued some bad medication. And uh, the autopsy said, essentially said that the, it was a combination of, of the medication and, and, and the rabies not being treated appropriately that killed him. And he died. Wow. Um, our maid uh, set his bath. Um, he went in, never came out. And, and he didn't come out for hours, and she finally went in there and found him. He was dead. Yeah, what, what What is your uh, thoughts and opinions on on what you think the reality is of that situation? Are you oh, yeah. have you formulated an no, idea? No, absolutely, you, yeah. absolutely. I mean, from the beginning, when my mom my mom would tell us a story all the time, and you know, I, they killed him. I mean, in my mind, he was he yeah, was yeah. a hit. Yeah. It was strategic. They had to shut him up, and and you know, he had that he had that warrior mentality. Mm -hmm. He had the mentality. I'm going to stand up. I don't care who you are or what you do to me. I'm going to win. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight. And a lot of people in Nigeria and a lot of these countries, they don't do that mm -hmm. because they know once you do that, potentially you could lose your life. Your family can lose their life. Mm -hmm. But my dad was just like, I'm a fighter, you know. And so I truly believe that they took him out um, and, and, and that, you know. It is what it is. You know? Yeah, you know, I, I spent a year, I, I lived in Africa for a year in Libya and, uh, you know, it's a little bit, it's obviously a little bit different uh, because of the Arab influence, yeah. but the bottom line is Africa rolls that way. I yeah. mean, literally in Africa, oh, yeah. um, th there are, I mean, man, there there are things that happen in Africa that never hit the front line of anything. Oh, oh absolutely. You know, we, we look at a mass shooting, and I don't mean to, to downgrade the uh, significance uh, of a tragedy that happens in the United States, but a world event from America could be a few people getting killed in a mass shooting. Yeah. They have entire epidemics yeah, of disease, of genocide, of violence that completely kills hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people, yeah. and no, the world doesn't report on it. Never. And I always thought that was the biggest tragedy. <laughs> yeah. um, we're actually working with some people in South Africa, and I hope uh, this year to get to uh, Africa and spend some time there doing yeah. some good. Yeah. Um, so look, you, you come out of Africa, your yeah. mom makes a decision, what I thought was uh, Funny as you said, your mom moved from the United States to Africa. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. when you said that, I'm like, well, nobody would really move yeah. from, from the United States to Africa. But it makes sense. Your, your dad was yeah. a very successful man. Yeah, yeah. And, and he had the foundation that was built over there of, of his successes. But then that falls apart. And now your mom has to make a decision. She, yeah. she makes the decision to move you guys and I'm assuming it's New York. New York City, the Bronx. She grew up, she was born and raised in New York City. I tell people all the time, you know, my mom's story and my dad's story is a real coming to America story, Eddie Murphy story, you know. It's a great movie, <laughs> great movie. Um, but, what was the McDonald's? It wasn't McDonald's, it, it was uh, uh, It was like a W. <laughs> I, I can't I get remember. Oh, I'm, it's gonna what was it? McDowell's. McDowell's, man. Oh. <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah, man. yeah, so. So yeah, you know, my mom relocated us then. You know, uh, this is a story that didn't make it into my book, but uh, I think it all didn't hit my mom until this one event happened. My she she called up a, a family members of hers, a cousin of hers who was who was pretty well off. He was he was a um, he's a businessman, and and she said, you know, my husband's died. I have not a nickel to my name. I I don't know how I'm gonna feed these kids. Can you loan me some money? And once I get the money, I'll figure out 
I'll, once I get some money, I'll, I'll pay you back. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and he, he said, let me call you back in about five minutes. And five minutes later, um, the phone rings, and it's his wife. And uh, she says to my mom, how dare you call up my husband and ask him from who do you think you are to call up my husband? Whoa. You come through to me. You come through me, you know, if you want to ask somebody. But don't you ever do this again. And she hung up the phone on my mom. Wow. And I think and my mom tells me that, told, has told me that story many times. And she said, that was my bottom. That mm. was when. Yeah, because to, to take the. To, to take her pride and set it aside yeah. for a mother exactly, yeah. to be able to reach out like that and then he gets shut down. Stunned, yeah, and, and that was that was when she looked up and said she could have went one of two ways. She wanted to die. Mm. You know, she wanted to die, but one of the things that kept her alive was me and my brother. Mm -hmm. and, and But again, she could have went one, she could have killed herself. She could have went out and said, you know, I'm, well, I'm going to find a husband that, or a rich husband that could take care of these kids because my mom's a very attractive woman. Or... I'm going to pick myself up off this ground and fight and make a way for these kids. And people ask me all the time, like, Remy, where do you get your resilience and your perseverance from? And every time I say, I, I had a living example of it every day of my wow, life, man. you know. Wow. Um, so she picked herself up off the ground and she just, she, she put the pedal to the metal. Um, she would work, she would work multiple jobs. She started out as a teacher in the South Bronx. Um, she would take uh, side jobs on the weekends at, at, at museums and art mm -hmm. galleries because she loved the arts and she wanted to expose my brother and I to the art. Even though we were in the Bronx, she wanted to show us another side of life. Mm -hmm. um, she would save up her pennies when she could to take us to, to uh, you know, theaters or when she would get free tickets, she would try to take us to plays and things like that. Um, but for the most part, we struggled. Um, me and my brother, we sh I mean, I'm sure you can relate to some of this stuff, but we shared clothes. <laughs> um, uh, there were times when my mom didn't have enough food to, to feed herself. Yep. She had just enough food to feed my brother and mm -hmm. I. And I remember hating onions. I hated vegetables, but I hated onions with a passion. And I remember one day I was sitting at the table and she made this dish with onions in it and she would watch us in the, in the um, doorway of the kitchen to make sure we ate our food. And uh, I'm spitting out these onions and she just slaps me upside the head. And, and she said, why are you spitting out this food? And tears started coming down her eyes. And I, as a young boy, didn't get it. Yeah, yeah, That yeah. was food that she could have been eating. She yeah. just gave us her last. So, yeah. you know, it was it was a struggle. Um, as time went on, um, she couldn't control me anymore. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a boy. And I was as I got into my teenage years, um, hip-hop and, and, and hip-hop culture and rap culture mm -hmm. began to blossom. You know, Jay-Z, Biggie Smalls, you Nas, know, Nas Tupac, yeah, saw, you know, yeah. Tribe Called Quest. Like, yep. all of these rappers came out, and um, I felt like I could, I could relate to them mm -hmm. because they came from where I came from. They grew up in single-parent homes like I did, the majority of mm -hmm. them, and they came from inner cities just like I did. And because I didn't have a father or a, a consistent positive male role model in my life to sit me down and say, this is what a man is. Mm -hmm. This is what a man does. Mm -hmm. This is how a man acts. I looked at them through listening to music and through watching music videos, and I was like, those are my dads. Mm -hmm. Like, those are the men that I want to be. Yep. And so I wanted money, power, and respect. So I started out stealing from my mom. That progressed to, you know, stealing from stores and stealing from jobs. That pro progressed to selling drugs, mm -hmm. you know, and then that progressed to run, running high-level scans while I was involved in some some crazy stuff with drug mm -hmm. dealers, and I was bringing in thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a week mm -hmm. doing all kinds of illegal activity. And, you know, I hid it from my mom um, the best I could, but one day I ended up, you know, 
I, because I was so heavy, heavy into music, I wanted to start a record company. Mm -hmm. So I eventually did start a record company called Eighth Wonder Records, and I was using drug money and illegal scam money to fund a record company. And I ended up getting involved in a deal with a drug dealer that went bad because I sold them some products, a large number of products that I did not want to sell them because I knew that, the, that there was a high risk, but I sold it to them anyway. They were supposed to last for a certain amount of time. It only lasted for a fraction of that time. Mm -hmm. And when it lasted for a fraction of that time, he came knocking on my mom's apartment door. Mm. And uh, essentially, he threatened me in my mom's apartment. He said, if you don't have my money by this time, things are not going to go too well for you. I knew what that meant. I knew that he was going to kill me and mm -hmm. potentially kill my mom because I knew his reputation. He was just that kind of guy in the streets. And so I went out. I made him all his money back within a day. I mean, I had some money you know, stashed away. And I kind of that's when I decided I can't keep living this life mm. anymore. I need to step away. And so I stepped away for six months. And this is now... This event happened in December of 2001, like three months after 9-11. Mm -hmm. so and how old were you at the time? At this time, I'm 19. Ooh. You know, I'm 19 at this time. And uh, and, and and I sat home for six months, and, and I tried to shop my record company to a, uh, to a, to a major label, but that didn't work, and, and that's what began my journey into the military. Now, man, that's... So was one of the reasons... Um, that it kind of became a crossroads when that uh, drug dealer came in the house or the or your place. Yeah. That your mom was involved in that because it's like yeah. it's not real till it's real. Yeah. And then when you have loved ones that are involved yeah. in that, because I've kind of experienced that. And then when they when they show up, and then it's like, oh my, like yeah. now it comes back. It's like, whoa, this is real. No, absolutely. Like my family is in is it's been compromised. Oh, absolutely. You know, my mom. You know. She used to spank my brother and I when we were kids. Like she was really, she was really quick with it. She yeah. was like Bruce Lee with a belt, man. The way Bruce Lee was with a nunchuck, oh, yeah. nunchucks, you know. And and one thing that taught me, you know, is there are consequences for actions. Mm -hmm. That you know, eventually you will reap what you sow. Yeah. And so because that was instilled in me at a young age, when that kid dude came knocking on my door and threatened me in my mom's house, that was my spanking. Yeah. To a certain extent, that was okay. A, a big consequence has come and it can get even worse now that mommy's involved. Yeah. You know, my world, you know, she was the only woman in my world at that time. Well, know? the fact that you even uh, recognize that, because yeah. uh, so many people, obviously, and you know this, mm -hmm. probably with people that you grew up with, people that are still there, yeah. who have not seen the consequences of, or not realized the consequence of their actions, no. who still live that life. Absolutely. My boy. Rod, you know, me and him used to do sell drugs together. We used to steal together. We used to do it all together. Mm -hmm. He's he's in prison right now. Mm -hmm. um, and that could have easily been And you. that could have been me. He's doing a 10-year prison sentence mm -hmm. for strong-arm robbery. And, you know, I talked to him, and it's crazy because it's, it's so crazy because he calls me, and, you know, I get the call from the prison, and, it's, and it has mm -hmm. a message. You are now receiving a call from an inmate at such and such facility, and... I hear that I'm like, this should be me. Mm. Like, how am I yeah. not where he is and here where I'm at now? Mm. You know, so it's, it's humbling. It's humbling. Yeah. And so, but yeah, how, I could, I should be there. Yeah. How, how do you think, um, you, know, I, you know, some of these stories are resonating with me. I, yeah. I grew up poor and yeah. my, my mom, we didn't, like, I remember one year we didn't have shoes. Yeah. My mom didn't have a car. Yeah. She couldn't afford a car, and we didn't have, she couldn't afford to buy me a pair of shoes. So I had to wear flip flops to yeah. school, got made fun of. And then uh, realizing, uh, you know, that we didn't have a vehicle, walk into this store, and you know, there's all these struggles and these things that um, make you humble. Yeah. It, especially 
looking back at that life, yeah. how do you think the streets affected you to where you're at now? You know, where you learned from the streets? Because I think that's really important for people to oh, understand. Oh, yeah, man. So, so many things. One, it made me hard. Mm. I mean, it gave me that obstinate, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I could take a beat. I mean, I was, I remember I was, I was eight years old mm. on a basketball court. And me and this kid got into an argument. He was my age. And he went and he got his uncle who just got out of prison. He was 30 years old. He got his cousin who was 19 years old. And they beat, the, they beat me to a, slammed me on the concrete. They beat me to a pope. I'm an eight-year-old kid. Mm. You know, I remember, you know, getting jumped, having certain things happen to me. So when you live that life, mm -hmm. it, makes you, it makes you hard. You know, yeah. it, just, it just hardens you up. Yep. Another thing it gave me was street smarts and street wisdom. You know, I was able, I don't know, I was able to just recognize quickly, especially when I got into the military, got in soft and started mm -hmm. doing some of the things that I was doing, I began, I could quickly recognize when somebody was lying to me, yeah. when somebody was trying to play me, or yep. when the situation was about to get crazy, because yep. <laughs> that's the way it was in the you streets. You saw it happen, absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? We call it behavioral dynamics. Where exactly. You, where you understand how to measure and read behavior based on all these experiences that you had, and micro doses of... Uh, essentially trauma. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and, yeah. But that's the that's the best learning curve for optimizing that resiliency that you gain, obviously. No, absolutely, life. absolutely. And, you know, even trust. Yeah. You know, you know, it taught me that you, growing up in the Bronx, you can't trust everybody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't really trust nobody. Yep. You know, so, so it really taught me the importance of vetting and taught me this lesson. Trust is earned. It's not mm -hmm. given. Yep. You know, it's earned. So what, what about negative impacts? Because I know there's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's definitely some negative impacts that are affected by that kind of uh, behavior. What, what do you think negative impacts? Oh, man, I mean, there was so many. I mean, just this idea that that I can't rise above my circumstance, I would think was was the greatest negative impact for me. And mm -hmm. I think is an impact for a lot of kids who come from where I came, come, came from. In my mind, I thought that all I could be was a rapper, a drug dealer, or an athlete. Mm -hmm. You know, that, you know, Biggie said it, you know, either you sling and crack rock or you got a wicked jump shot, you know? Mm -hmm. And so having this, this, this idea that this is all I can achieve mm -hmm. was the biggest negative impact that I had. Mm -hmm. um, and wow, there's so many other things. I mean, integrity, you know, I, and I, I don't want to say this about everybody, but I can just speak it for myself personally. When you're in a situation where you do what you got to do to survive. Yeah. The you know, hustle is animalistic, the, right? Because you're doing everything exactly. you need to do to survive. Exactly. So, I mean, I, you know, I would, like I said, I, st I, was st I, stole, I stole my mom's engagement ring. My dad, the only thing my mom had left was my dad's engagement ring. Mm. I pawned that in. Yeah. $400. Mm -hmm. You know, so you're, 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 you know, when you hustle and you, you, you know, you just get to this point where you, you will compromise your integrity in mm -hmm. every way. And I, again, I'm not saying that for everybody who comes from where I came from, but I'm saying that that's how it affected me mm -hmm. and impacted me in a negative way. You know, mm -hmm. how, so how does the game change? How do you, yeah. how, what was a, a turning point where you're a civilian, you're, you're understanding yeah. and living this life and then you, you know, months after 9-11, you look at the future. Yeah. And, and like, I can't even imagine the Navy <laughs> yeah, yeah. bumper sticker being in that, in that <laughs> Yeah, it was. Like, it was. Well, I'll, I'll back up a little bit, as, and then I'll, I'll, I'll punch mm -hmm. it in the face. But, um, my, uh, my, again, I said my mom was into the arts, and she would take us to go see films when she could, you know, matinees, you know, when she could, because she loved, she, she, she equated 
film to the arts, which you know, she I sounds like well. an amazing woman. She by, is, by the man. way. That, I mean, people think she's my sister. She's sixty six. She works out every day. You know, that's people, awesome. Man. She, she eats super healthy. But anyway, so she was. So she um, took us to a film to watch a movie one day called Bad Boys. Mm -hmm. um, Will Smith was Will, in it. Yeah, Will Smith and Martin, and Martin Lawrence. Lawrence yeah. yeah, and and that movie really impacted me and resonated with me because that was the first time I saw two African American men who a looked positive like me. Influence. Positive. Yeah. They weren't playing drug dealers or yeah. you know they, they would just and not only were they cut but they had swag mm -hmm. so in my mind i was like man like you could still be cool i could still be, be cool and do something good mm -hmm. so that was that that seed was planted in me and then a year later a film by the name of the rock came out by the mm -hmm. same director michael mm -hmm. bay and that was the first time i had heard about or seen a navy seal i never heard anything about Navy, Navy SEALs. Mm -hmm. And that's something in the Bronx, you don't hear about Delta, you don't hear about OGA, you don't hear about these no, programs. Yeah. So it was through film that I was exposed to the SEAL teams and after I watched that movie, I kind of buried this dream within me that said if I ever turn my life around, this is what I, I'm gonna do. Mm. But it was just, it was literally a far-fetched idea. It was kind of like me saying right now, one day I'm gonna be the president of the United States. The chance of that happening is slim to none. Mm -hmm. That what, what is what it was like. So fast forward to, to that those six months after I got involved in that deal, I did pretty much nothing. My mom would get on me every day, Remy, you need to get a job, you need to get out of the house. Mm. And then one day in June of 2002, I was laying in my bed and I heard this voice speak to me. Like it's the craziest, it's one of the craziest experiences I had. And that voice literally said to me, I got out of my bed and looked around like, who's talking? And that voice said to me, you need to get out of here. You need to join the military. Really? I swear to you, I'm not making this up. It said, Man. you need to get out of here. You need to join the military. And I was just like, <laughs> like the military? I hated the police. Mm -hmm. I hated cops. Mm -hmm. I associated anybody in a uniform as the police. Yeah, yep. I hated authority. Mm -hmm. I like my clothes baggy, my hats backwards. I remember making fun of kids in high school who were in ROTC. Mm -hmm. So for me to join the military was totally contrary to everything I was, absolutely. And as I, as I heard this voice, this battle began to take place in my mind. And I was just looking around, I was like, hmm, what else do I have left? Yeah. Like, what else am I gonna do? And, and so I was like, okay, let me see what this military thing is about. So I got out of my bed, I walked down the street, I grew up on Fordham Road. And I walked, I walked first I walked into the Marine Corps recruiter's office because I didn't know better. I sat down, there was coffee in the desk, on the desk, but there was no one in there. I sat there for like 15 minutes and no one showed up. The door was wide open, just like, yeah. it was in like a strip mall, indoor strip mall. Yeah. And then after 15 minutes, I got up and I, and I walked next door, well, two doors down, and went to the Navy recruiter's office. And when I went in there, it was this gorgeous <laughs> Puerto Rican Navy recruiter uh -huh. in there. And in my naive mind, I'm like, I'm gonna get this girl, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna be where this, yeah. this, yeah. this is at. And uh, she said, what do you wanna do? And I lifted up my arms, I was like, Yo, I wanna be a Navy SEAL, girl, what's up? And she looked at me like, this guy's a fool. And of, of, there was a few things she did, but as you know, one of the first things she had to do was run my background. Yeah, yeah. And she ran my background and, and she found out that I had I had two warrants out for my arrest. What? I had a warrant in New Jersey. <laughs> and I had a warrant in New York. Yeah. And so I got up. Yeah. And I'm getting ready to leave. She knew point. it. She saw it. And, and yeah. Yeah. She was like, you have warrants. You cannot join the military. And, I'm, and at this point, I'm like, I'm about to go to jail. So I get up and I leave. 
And right before I hit the door, she stops me. She said, do you have a suit? I said, no. She said, do you have a, a collared shirt and some pants? I said, yeah. She said, come back tomorrow. I came back the next day. She was in her dress uniform. Mm -hmm. She took me to both judges. She took me to the judge in New Jersey. And this is over like a week span, but just for the sake of time, I'm minimizing it. But she took me to the judge in New Jersey, the judge in New York, and she said, this guy's trying to turn his life around. Are you serious? I swear to you. She said, this guy's trying to turn his life around by joining the military after an act of war, 9-11. Both judges unanimously were like, if this kid is serious, we will expunge his record. My, my record got expunged, but that still didn't qualify me to join the military because in, on, when you go to MEPS, you have that questionnaire. Have yeah, you yeah. ever done anything? Have you, has you, have you ever had anything on your record, whether it's been expunged or sealed or mm -hmm. whatever? And my recruiter told me, Remy, don't check yes to nothing. Mm -hmm. Because if you check yes, you're not, not going to no get in. Yeah. And so I said no to everything. And, she, and, and the crazy thing about it, she fudged other paperwork and she got my record cleared so fast that by the time the MEPS ran my stuff, nothing showed up. She, she offered you redemption, redemption without even knowing you. And, and, and she was from the Bronx. She didn't know me at all, but mm. she was from the Bronx. Man. And she saw a lot of people who came from the Bronx mm. end up dead or in prison. She gave you that opportunity. And she was like, this guy, though, he, though, you know, though people make mistakes, that doesn't mean that they don't have potential. That's yeah. essentially what her action said. And she gave me that second chance. Mm. And um, the sad part about it is I found out, because I tell the whole story in my book, I found out that she died four years after that. Are you serious? Of a super, she was 30 years old. Mm. She died of a super rare um, autoimmune disease. But you know her actions changed the trajectory of my life, and then oh, you know I like I, I met I mean her family is super cool now, and I yeah. found out that she, that's what she would do. That's powerful, man. Yeah, she would it's do. those it's those it's those small opportunities in yeah, life man. that when you take them and then somebody offers empathy, yeah, it just sets you on a different path, man. You could have I mean she saved your life. She saved my life, and uh -huh. that's and, that, and that's my one of my core messages in the book is all of us have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to mm -hmm. see that one person that no one wants to have anything to do with, mm -hmm. who's made mistakes and say, listen, I know you've made mistakes, but let me see what I could do for you. Yeah. You know, and that's what she did for me. And that's how I ended up in the Navy. <laughs> so, so when you when you went into the Navy yeah. and you uh, you signed up, did you actually sign up for a SEAL contract right off the bat? No, I couldn't because I couldn't swim. <laughs> <laughs> you know, There's I not a whole bunch of Olympic-sized pools running in the around Bronx. the Bronx. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I didn't have the academic scores. You know, mm -hmm. as you know, guys in our field, you, you can't be an idiot and do our job. Yep, you know? yep. So we, we have to have high ASVAP scores. I didn't have those scores. And I was skinny. I mean, I couldn't do a push-up. You, know, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I wore the baggy clothes and, you know, did the tough guy thing. But, you know, I, I wasn't as strong as I mm -hmm. needed to be to get into the program. So, you know, as soon as I got to boot camp, um, a SEAL came and he did a presentation on what SEALs do and then after he did that presentation he allowed guys to do the screening test if they qualified from an ASVAB perspective and I couldn't do it. So um, so after boot camp I, had to, I went to my first command which was Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton mm -hmm. and it was at that command where you know, I asked my LPO, you know, can you change my schedule? Can I work, you know, in the morning, have the afternoon off and then work the night clinic because I was a corpsman, I was a medic so I yeah, worked yeah. in the hospital and she said sure. So. In the afternoon, I spent all my time training. You know, I would I didn't have a car. I would run three miles to the pool, jump in the pool in the shallow end, and just mm -hmm. flail around, try to figure it out. And I would run three miles back to the barracks. Mm -hmm. um, I would I went to the I watched Bud's two three four video that that yeah um, yeah, yeah. Was in. Louis Rivera yeah, yeah. and uh, I would just 
you see what they did and I just started creating workouts. Mm. And then I got an ASVAPs for Dummies book and I started, you know, studying the ASVAP book. And from a, I checked in in January 2003 to my command, Naval Hospital um, Camp Pendleton. And in January 2004, I was in Bud's. I had met all the qualifications from swimming to academics to fitness to, to everything from, you know, uh, evals at my command. Everything I needed to have in order to get into SEAL training, I got that in a year. So what, I, what, I'm, what I'm noticing about that entire process yeah. is, is you made it deliberate, right? Yeah. And, and what you did also is you asked. You asked the questions exactly. and you didn't accept no as an answer. Exactly. And so when you, when you come, you know, in, in, uh, if there's any pro tips that you can think about uh, for our listeners, yeah. look, there, there's a lot of things that you need to isolate and prepare on for the future as an end goal or yeah. an objective. So yeah. if obviously if the the BUDS entry, physical examinations, aptitude tests are the baseline, mm -hmm. then you have to isolate all those things. And you did that exactly from the get go. You, exactly. went, you went, hey, I'm making a deliberate plan. It starts yep. with physical body and then I'm working to improve my, my asset. And you yeah. had fire behind you. What, what, what is what was that fire? What was that like? What was it in you that was like I have to do this and be the best best at it? It was two things. One, I wanted from you know being a kid listening to hip hop and all that. You know, I wanted to be the best rapper. I wanted to to be the best record mogul. I always had that mindset, and I think I got it from my dad. And so I wanted to if I was going to be in the Navy. I wasn't going to just be a corpsman. I wanted to be a part of the best. Yeah, and that yeah. was my mindset. The second thing is I had failed so much in life, in my opinion, up until that point, I could not fail at achieving this dream. Mm. So that was my every day. That's what woke me up every morning. Mm. I am going to be somebody. And another part of my story that I, I forgot to, to tell that, that was the motivation. My aunt Doki, she's 100 years old now. She'll be 101 wow, this year. Man. She's still alive. That's amazing. Even though the, the recruiter was able to get my record cleared, I still had to pay the court fees and court fines. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have the money. My mom didn't have the money. She went and pulled out all of her money and her savings. Mm -hmm. And she gave me the money. She said, I don't ever want you to pay me back. All I want you to do is be somebody. Ooh. So for me, when it sucked running to that pool because I didn't have a car, mm -hmm. when it sucked getting in that pool because I couldn't swim, when, it, when I was running up that hill and I was exhausted, when I couldn't figure out the mechanical comprehension and the other stuff that I had to learn in ASVAP. What drove me over and over and over again was I made, I needed this commitment to my aunt to be somebody, this commitment to myself not to fail. Mm. You know, I didn't need somebody to come behind me and say, Remy, do this, Remy, do that. And it's funny because people would come alongside me and they would say, can I train with you? Can I do this with you? Can I do that? And I would tell them, sometimes I would tell them no, because I'm not going to wait on you. Yeah. And when you're, when you're complaining and lagging, I don't want that in my ear. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's what really drove, and that's what, what drives me to this day. You know, this is not, this for me, this, this level is not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, especially knowing what my father went through and knowing what my mother went through to get me to where I'm at today, I can't fail. That's what drove me. That's what continues to drive me. So you go, look, I, you know, for, for people who listen to this who don't know the difficulties of going through SEAL training, yeah. it's one of the most difficult uh, assessments and selections in special operations because the water yeah. is the dis discriminator, right? The water attrits more people than any yeah. element on the planet. Yeah. And it's it's a lot of people's worst fears. Yeah. And so 
you're African-American, yeah. you're not a good swimmer, yeah. you're not a strong swimmer, yeah. and then you get up and you're like, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. I'm going to be a frog, man. <laughs> I'm going to be a frog, man. Um, so what are some of the difficulties that you face and how did you overcome that in, in specifically in Bud's training? Uh, the biggest difficulty, difficulty for me was the, the two-mile time ocean swims. Really? It was, yeah. I mean, I could, do, I could take the beat-down sessions, mm-hmm. I could call me names, the mind games, mm-hmm. the old course, the runs. Easy day, I do that in my mm-hmm. sleep. But they put me in that cold ocean water, yeah. and they would tell me this one. And and I struggled. And part of the reason why I struggled is I didn't come to buds as prepared as I should have. Mm-hmm. I I I didn't know that you had that when you when you were in buds you had to swim with fins. So mm-hmm. when I trained, I just trained without fins. Mm-hmm. And I remember during the first base swim, I put on those fins, and I didn't know what I was doing. And it was called wetsuit appreciation because they essentially make you swim in the cold bay without a wetsuit. And I just remember kicking around and not going anywhere. And the instructors pointed guided me to the side and said, how the hell do you show up to SEAL training and you can't swim? Wow. Uh, you're going to quit. You're not going to last a day. You're not going to last a week here. Mm-hmm. And um, so on every swim, the swim time was 85 minutes. I was swimming 120 minutes. And the Pacific Ocean is freezing, freezing cold. So wait, eight, so it's an 85-minute standard, but they would let, if you failed the standard, they, let, they, they would you still keep, keep you in the water. Yeah, or quit. So or you're talking you an hour? Two hours. Two hours. It got to the point where the instructors would tell me, they would say, Remy, or Adelaide, should we bring a, a movie, a DVD play on the boat Dang, this time? Because I yeah. was a lot, me and my swim buddy were the last ones in the water. Yeah. And I and I had no body fat. I still mm-hmm. don't have a lot of body fat, but I had no body fat at the time. So I was either hypothermic or on the verge of hypothermia at mm-hmm. the end of every mm-hmm. swim. And that is buoyant, right? When you have body fat, you're yeah, buoyant. You're buoyant. You're, you're, you're warmer. Float. I float all day long, yeah. man. I could, I could float <laughs> for, for years, man. Yeah, man. And so, so you're going through that, mm-hmm. and it, it, there's a... Um, Look, it's difficult for people with low body fat percentages to yeah. swim, period. Yeah. How did you overcome that? Um, after I made it through Hell Week, um, uh, the Bud's cadre decided, okay, this guy has what it takes to be a SEAL. Mm. To you didn't quit. In training. Yeah, because I didn't quit. Yep. I didn't quit during Hell Week, and I didn't quit during any of the swims. <laughs> they were like, yeah. this guy's crazy. So uh, so what I did was I, uh, um, uh, I got put in a rollback land. Mm-hmm. So they had a rollback program where they pulled me out of training. They put me in a program where I learned how to swim. And then once mm-hmm. I learned how to swim. They focused their attention on you to make you succeed. Exactly. Because they were like, okay, like we, we know yeah. you got what it takes mentally. Now let's get you up to speed on this swimming thing. And when you when you go through that program and go back in, do you still have to go through Hell Week? Or they no, 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 no. So I, I, I picked up with the, once I fully went through it, the next class that graduated Hell Week, mm-hmm. I classed up with them after they graduated awesome, Hell Week. So, um, so after I graduated, after that, you know, I graduated from first phase, I passed the times, and then I had to go into second phase, which was dive phase. A mm-hmm. um, few things happened. I got prideful. I got really, really prideful. I, you know, in my mind, I was like, you know, I came from Africa, made it through the Bronx, I'm a SEAL trainer, I made it through Hell Week, you can't tell me nothing, nobody can't tell me anything. And I would go out to clubs and party and tell girls at the bar I'm a Navy SEAL. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, I was wild, I was, I was a, I see, I, I'm being real with That's you, I so was crazy. Awesome, man. And girls like, hey, what are you, I'm a frog man, I'm a SEAL man. Well, so I would be like, I'm a Green Beret, and they're like, what's a Green, you're not a SEAL, oh, you're a SEAL, right? I'm like, no, I'm a, oh, I'm a SEAL, never mind, I'm a SEAL. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so I did that and, and you know, uh, um, Instructors would show up on the weekend for what was not mandatory remediation. So if you had a deficiency or you were struggling in any mm-hmm. area, they say, hey, come on the weekend and we'll work with you. The swim times from uh, first phase dropped in second phase to 80 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I failed my first two swims because I stopped training on the weekend. And then I went to pool week where you have to do a bunch of dive tests. I passed 
the majority of the dive tests, but I failed one dive evolution called the tread, where you got to tread with dive tanks and twin eighties and all these other devices on. Is that the one where you you your you hands can't touch the water? Yeah, your hand. Yeah, oh, man, that's a brutal. Yeah, and I failed that yeah. four times. Um, and so I went to academic review board, and at the board they said, "Hey, listen, Remy, you've already been rolled for swims. You're showing us that you know you don't have what it takes to be a seal." So I got kicked out of seal training. Um, how, how did, go back to that moment. Yeah. You're sitting there at yeah, the board, at and the they board. tell you that. What What are you feeling inside? The, honestly, that was the first time in my adult life I pointed my finger at my chest and said, you did this to yourself. Mm. And I remember saying to the, all the instructors on the board, because they said, do you have anything to say? I said, you know what? I appreciate the opportunity you guys gave me. Mm. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And so you have every right to kick me out of this program. And, and that wasn't coming from, I hope I'm going to say this, and they like, yeah, oh, well, yeah. that came from, I yeah. screwed up, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to admit yeah. that I did. Holding yourself accountable. Holding myself accountable. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that was a failure, but the next day, I was in the pool. And I didn't know if I was going to get a chance to go back to SEAL training, because there was no guarantee. But the next day, I was in the pool training, training, training. Fast forward, because I don't want to bore you, but I ended up getting back into SEAL training two years later. Wow. And that's when I made it through. So that was a two-year journey yeah. of... Like looking at your life really hard myself, under a microscope, yeah. humbling yourself, going, yeah. hey, if you really want this, yep. you have to be tactically patient enough to want it for real. Exactly. And sustain yourself and train yourself and prepare yourself yeah. this time. Yeah. So you spent two years back, so you're back as a medic. Yep, I'm in the infantry now, 1st Marine Division, yep. training, deployed, came back, and then from there, I got accepted. And it was pretty awesome because my LPO, he became the command career counselor for all of 1st Marine Division. LP, what's LPO? Uh, LPO, leading petty officer. I, I would say equivalent would be like a sergeant or yeah, uh, NCIC, a, team, we call them. a team leader or yeah, something like yeah. that. He became, so he went from being in charge of eight corpsmen to being in charge of like 500 corpsmen's wow. careers. So he knew my work ethic. Mm. And, and, and so he was like, okay, this dude works hard. He wants to go back to BUDS. Um, they, he got me back in the BUDS. So he went to the, com- to the command master chief of, of First Marine Division. He said, listen, you know, he has everything it takes. And the command master chief said, well, make him sign a page 13, that, page 13 that says if he doesn't make it through, he has to come back and do three years and two more deployments before he gets a chance to go back. So this was literally, because of the age restriction, you know, this was literally my last chance. You know, I was like 20, 24 at the time. This was my, 23 at the time, 24. My last chance being able to go back to bus. So I went back and yeah. I've crushed everything. You know, really? I crushed everything. Because I mean, you showed up prepared. I showed up and humble. Now I had to go through everything from day one. Mm-hmm. I had to do first phase all over again. I had to do Hell Week again, all of that stuff. But you know, I I thank God that I had that journey. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because it humbled me, it prepared mm-hmm. me, it strengthened me, and it showed me that you know what. It showed me that I don't have a perceived limit. You know, so often we as human beings put these perceived limits on mm-hmm. ourselves. Oh, I can't go through that again. How can I go through that again? Oh, I can't do this. I can't do. That. How do you know? Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to the Mid-Roll Break brought to you by Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. Designed by humans for humans, Casper products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. You spend one third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. The experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep surface that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. Affordable prices because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you. Hassle-free returns if you're not completely satisfied. 
free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. And for right now, for a limited time, get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash fieldcraft and using fieldcraft at checkout. Again, that's $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash fieldcraft and using fieldcraft at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Note this offer is only applicable to select mattress purchases. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Blinkist. So if you're like me and you're on the go, you're completely busy and you don't have enough time in life to do really anything. Uh, One of my favorite things to do is to use Blinkist on the go. It's an app that takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them into 15 minutes so you can read or listen. Listening is my favorite. Blinkist has made for busy people like you who want to get the main points of the books quickly without reading the entire book. It's the cliff notes. With audio features, Blinkist makes it easy to finish four books a day. About 8 million people right now are using Blinkist, and it has a massive and growing library. From self-help, business, health, to history, some of my favorites are The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, How to Win Friends and Influence People, The 4-Hour Workweek, and Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash survival to start your seven-day free trial. That's again, uh, yeah, I said it's seven days, and it's free. That Blinkist is uh, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T.com slash survival. And again, to start your free seven-day trial, Blinkist.com slash survival. Thanks, guys. So uh, when you look at failure and you look at all the things that you went through, yeah. what is the biggest lesson learned that you learned from failure? And how did oh, that man. help you in your life? The biggest lesson that I learned is that a failure is not a failure if you learn from it. Mm-hmm. If you learn from it, it's a lesson. Mm-hmm. And if you apply that lesson, that lesson can lead to success. Mm-hmm. You know, people look at my life often and they see all of the things that I have accomplished and they think this guy's lived a perfect life. I have not. Mm-hmm. I think the reason why I'm in, I am successful, successful is because I failed over and over and over again. But at the same time, which each, with each failure, I derived a lesson from it, mm-hmm. which has stuck with me to this day. You know, and to this day as a writer, you know, as a speaker, you know, as a husband, as a father, I'm still having failures. I'm still making mistakes. But you're still learning. But I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. And, and knowledge is power. You know, we say that's, that's safe, that statement so flippantly at times, but that's so true. Yeah. And, and you know, it, there's nothing that will stick in your mind like deep failure, deep regret, deep pain. Mm. <laughs> you know, because when you go through those things, you don't want to go through them again. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> you know, so that, that's the biggest lesson that I gave. And there's, and there's no timelines on these things because yeah. some of the le- lessons that you learn uh, from failure come yeah. way down the road, yeah. right? So yeah. it's like we, we have, it, you know, we, we reciprocate all these values and these lessons learned and we yeah. want immediate gratification. Absolutely. But a lot of the times, if we're humble enough to stick through that yes. two year wait period, yeah. and I call it being tactically patient. You know, yeah. I think about my time as a sniper yeah, yeah. and I'm always like, hey man, you gotta be tactically patient because the opportunity that you see through your optic right now 
there might be a, a broader and better advantage by yeah. waiting and being patient Patience, to absolutely. set yourself up for success. And the biggest mistake I made in my own career is I bounced around so much because I wanted to do everything yeah. that I didn't have the opportunity to enjoy the now, the moments, what, yeah. the moments that yeah. were happening. Yeah. And uh, you know that when I look at regrets and then living my life moving forward, yeah. as you have in lessons learned, now I, I live it a different way. Absolutely. When, I, when I'm in the moment, I have this you know, I'm really attentive and really focused because I want yeah. to look in the person's eyes yeah. and feel and connect and understand and, and it's just a part of a, a cycle of life. But that takes brutal failure yeah, for, in order for you to, <laughs> yeah. to, to understand. Absolutely, absolutely. But And along with that, you appreciate it when you do look back on it so absolutely, much more, yeah. you know, so. Absolutely. So the, how many African-American Navy SEALs are there? I, again, I'm just giving an estimate for myself. I think I was like the 50th in the history of the SEAL teams. That's crazy. Like somewhere around there. So, and so the SEAL teams were you know, started by uh, JFK in 1962, January 1st. And since then, I think I'm around the 50th. And, it, and the statistics show that it's around like less than 1% of active duty SEALs are African-American. Well, um, well, so I didn't get away with nothing. No, man, it's crazy. <laughs> I stuck out like a sore thumb, man. What's more important is how many Asian-American SEALs yeah, Same thing, there. same thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I know the, we're the percentage, small. The percentages yeah. are, I think the percentages are about the same as yeah, it relates it's to, low. To, to, to Asians and African-Americans, which is interesting to me. Um, I, I don't know, I, I'm hoping that, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, me, I'm sure you and Nick talked about it, but there's a stigma behind you know, guys, guys like from our backgrounds yeah, who yeah. write it, who are out and open. But you know, my heart with my story, one of my hearts was to inspire that African American kid, that Asian kid, that Hispanic kid who historically won't go into a program like that. They don't have the opportunity. Or the concept of going into a program is not even in their mind. Mm -hmm. I want them to see, look, this is possible. Yeah, like you can do this. You know, so so that was one of the main reasons why I said, you know what, I'm not going to worry about the noise or what people may say. I'm here to inspire and motivate change. So let's see how, how it helps. That. What, what was the transfer of that energy going from, you know, I don't want to gloss over yeah. your operational career yeah. in SEAL teams, but there's like, there's a there's something that changes in men who have experienced, whether it's trauma or just life, yeah. but there's some kind of transformation that takes place where when they get to an, a certain point in their life, they look back and they yeah. go, now I have to give back. What, oh, yeah. where, does that come, where does that manifest itself from? Uh, as far as me personally? Yeah, um, is that loss? Is that, like, because I, I can feel it. I know yeah, that's yeah. real. Well, for me, I was bullied. I, we, I don't want to call it bully, because growing up, you don't call it bully. Everybody bullies each other, so we don't call it bully. But I was bullied, I was, and I hated bullies. Yeah, I yeah. I hated bullies. And so as I began to grow as a man and realize, okay, being a frogman is not about beating my chest and saying, hey, look at me being a frogman and, you know, is about protecting those who can't protect themselves. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, it was about protecting the, the person who's being bullied by the bully. And that's why I love my job. You know, I have no regrets in that everything that I did as a SEAL, going downrange, deploying, you know what I mean? I, you know, my career, I had a total of three deployments, and, 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 and I loved every moment of it. I loved being that dude that snuck into a, a terrorist's house or whatever we want to call him for the sake of, you know. Bullies. You know, yeah, bully terrorists. Walk, walk into that bully's house who's been on video saying, I'm going to do this to you, I'm going to do, I've killed this person, I've done this, and they have done that kind of stuff. 
and then be the dude to stand over him with a black ski mask on and press M4 or mm-hmm. Mark 18 and say, yo, what up, what you got to and say smash now? him. And smash him. That yeah. was, I lived, I lived for that, mm-hmm. you know, and I loved doing that because I hated bullies and I still hate bullies. Um, so I love the job, man. Um, but yeah, that's why I hope you know, I'm going down different. No, you're not at all, man. I, <laughs> I reflect. I, I usually tell the story, but yeah. I, I, I talk about my uh, my first contract job yeah. was when I was in elementary school, and kids used to pay me to beat up bullies. Yeah, yeah. Because I can't. <laughs> there's something that that there's just this furious anger yeah. and, and and passion for beating the hell out of bullies. If yeah. I see anybody get yeah. bullied in public, yeah, yeah, yeah. just this. I mean, I just go into I to black berserk. Out. Yeah. I black out yeah. because I I can't. I don't like when when people who aren't capable, it, yeah. whether their upbringing or just their physical uh, disability, whatever it may be, yeah. cannot defend themselves, and yeah. somebody takes advantage oh, of absolutely. that. Oh, that's absolutely, that's why I like the, the Deo Presso Libera, the you know the free the oppressed for the uh, oh, special absolutely. operations. I just yeah, yeah, I love that too. Yeah, that's man. very significant part of the the reason why I've done that thing, and I can yeah. feel that same uh, energy. Oh yeah. oh yeah. So so now. You know, you do an operational successful career, and yeah. I want to know. And I've asked you prior, yeah. why did you decide to leave the the SEAL teams, especially yeah. so senior of a guy? Yeah, it was a hard. It was one of the hardest decisions that I had to make because, you know, my plan was to do twenty years, mm-hmm. um, but I had kids, man. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I had two little boys, and my dad died when I was five, mm-hmm. and I just felt this pull that I needed to be home. I, and you know, in our careers, we're gone. Yeah. Not just for deployments, but for yeah. training. And yeah, you know, yeah. as a team guy, I was, you know, I went from work up deployment, work up deployment, work up deployment. You know what I mean? And so, I I, I couldn't do that to my boys. And um, so that's that was the main reason why I got out. You know, I wanted to be there, be in their life, and be that influence. I didn't want something else to come along, whether it be music or whether it be some crazy person or whatever, to show my kids how to be men. You know, so and it starts early. I mean, it starts yeah. really, really early. So that's yeah, there's so many things that are missed. Yeah. And you know, when you look at the priority of work, a lot of guys in our field of expertise would say, you know, hey, it, we are justifying the means, and if the mission is the priority, everything yeah. else is secondary. Yeah. Even even your family yeah. in some, some cases. I know guys who, you know, and you you as well that yeah. you know they were deployed when they, their spouse gave birth, yeah. and they missed all these yeah. moments. And it's easy in that career field to justify. Um, neglecting that. No, absolutely. Like for me, when I was downrange, like when I was married, you know, you know, to my wife, you know, during my during my third deployment, and yeah, I just got married right before we deployed. And while I wasn't, while I was downrange, I wasn't thinking about her. She was not my priority at all. Yeah. <laughs> we had some heated arguments. It was surviving, it was yeah, yeah, because it was like for me, it was about the boys. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, you know this, it's, you know, it's, you know, George was as well. You know, it's about that guy to your right and that guy to your left. My greatest fear as a SEAL was doing something or not doing something that was going to get the guy to my right or guy to my left killed. And so I wasn't thinking about my wife. I wasn't thinking about her problems, whatever she was going through. And I remember we were getting on a call and she would just be like, you seem like you don't care about me. You don't love me. <laughs> and I'm like, I do, but this is priority. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. You know, was, that, was, that, was that a tough decision for you or was it a weight lifted at some, to some extent when you decided to make that commitment to leave? It was it was it was tough. It was, it was, it was, I mean, I, I literally fell into depression. I fell into depression. I was depressed um, for a long period of time. And, and then at the same time, I was trying to find my way. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Your purpose, your mission, like, a yeah, new mission. Yeah, what do I do now? You know what I mean? Where do I go now? You know, and um, it's interesting, crazy part of the story is I applied for GRS. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, got out in January 2016. 
And then, um, and then, and then, I want to say in March, I started the application process, and out of like, went, did an interview, did some stuff over the call, over the phone, and then all of a sudden the guy started stopped emailing me, mm-hmm. and so I'm thinking, you know, maybe I didn't qualify, maybe something happened. Um, I later found out that that the guy had left the job, and so all of his emails that happens were all the time, queue. the turnover, yeah, yeah. it was a turn, it didn't get turned over, it didn't mm-hmm. get turned over until that following September, and then that following September. I got an email from from somebody, and they were like, "Hey, dude, uh, sorry, we just we're just catching up to your emails. Are you still interested?" But I'll back up. I wasn't working on the movie at that time, <laughs> so 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 I re- I was in the interview process in March, and in May I was on I was a uh, cast in Transformers, you know. So so I got cast in Transformers, and I'm out here, you know, which is crazy because it was Michael Bay's first two films that inspired me to be a SEAL, and then I get a phone call from some woman out of the blue. I was in grad school at the time, you know, getting my master's in organizational strategy. And this woman calls me and said, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? You want to be a movie? Whose movie? Michael Bay's movie. Yeah, that dude's first two films inspired me to be a How does that? How does that? Yeah. <laughs> you well, know that changes mean? everything, right? Because, yeah. you know, you're living, like, I went through the same experience yeah. where you get out and all of a sudden the door closes behind you. Yeah. And you're trying to stay relevant, right? You're yeah. like, hey, how can I stay relevant yeah. but still find balance? Yeah. And then you don't have it. You don't have purpose. Yeah. You get depressed. And then something lifts you up, and yeah. is that is it that that phone call? Yeah, it was that phone call. because yeah. I because I was trying to figure out how to make my. I mean, the way I was surviving was it was off of my my post nine eleven GI bill. Yep. <laughs> you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, my, yeah. my wife's a doctor. Yeah. I feel like a turd because yep. my wife is the one bringing in the money mm-hmm. to help pay. You know, provide for our family, and 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 I'm just using GI bill. But that definitely was a game. It definitely lifted me up. I was just like, wow, like yes. And I didn't know how long it was going to last because originally it was just supposed to be one day, mm-hmm. but one day turned into, into into two weeks. Two weeks turned into three weeks, and then after three weeks of filming, the director, Michael Bay's talked to his assistant, said, hey, talk to Remy, ask him if he's available to stay on this film until we wrap. Oh, wow. And I got upgraded to a cast role, and the rest is history. You know, from that film, you know, I did some commercial work, I signed an endorsement deal with Jockey, I got stuff with SEAL Team, and that's how I, I got into Hollywood. People wow. ask me all the time, how did you get into acting? And I tell them, I didn't get into acting. You know, acting chose me. I mean, I wasn't thinking about being in yeah, this industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, well, let's talk a little bit about society, yeah. because, you know, and we talked a little bit about the African-American community. Yeah. And even, you know, I, I grew up with hip-hop. I, I was passionate about the roots, yeah, Tribe Called Quest. Yeah, yeah. And all these, and, and I what I did even at that time was I looked at the demographic. And I went, mm-hmm. I went look, I don't want to be like Master P and all these dudes that are putting yeah. out all this garbage. Yeah. I respect the guys like the roots who are putting yeah. out... Uh, they're lyricists, yeah, and, yeah, they're, yeah. and they're positive, yeah, absolutely. and they're debunking all this propaganda yeah, that all these kids are buying into. Absolutely. And so we, we take it over the course of our lives, and we get to the point we're at now where so many people, especially young people, yeah. are looking for mentors, Yes. but they're looking in the wrong places, yes. right? Yes. And so when, when they look at, at people, I, I respect like like Drake and some of the guys yeah. that are out there doing stuff, nonprofit work, and they're yeah. actually making a difference. Yeah. But how when you set yourself up because now you have a new responsibility yeah. and i feel this way about yeah. you is that like when when you're you're a uh, you're literally a representative of our community yes right yes, absolutely and so yeah. now you get into hollywood and you get the exposure to millions of people yeah. how do you find that balance and and you know when you when you are doing the things that you're doing how are you trying to stay humble to the to who you really are in that message, because it seems like yeah. so many people get lost in it. No, absolutely. I mean, for me, 
I talk, we talked about accountability, I think, before we got on the call. I think what keeps me from getting lost is I have, I have guys, you know, who will, who will put me in the fire yep. if I get ahead of myself. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have people, Frogman, you know what I mean, Chad, you know, guys who I've said to them, listen, if I get ahead of myself, you slap me around yep. and they do that. You know, that's what's helped me tremendously. Um, and then obviously my wife and my kids, you know, I, I, one, of the, I, one of the reasons why I feel like I've been so blessed in my life is because, you know, I've, I've tried to honor, I haven't been perfect, but I've tried to honor my wife and kids, you know, as much as I can. And there's some other things in my story I didn't get into that was found out later about my dad, some things that he did, you know, um, I'll be real, you know, I, there's kids that my dad had and uh you know that he had while he was married to my mom yeah you know yeah. what i'm saying yeah and so uh when we found i didn't find out until my 20s mm. is that the stepbrother you talked about my half brother half, half, half brother half, yeah half like, brother half like three half sisters you know three four half brothers which is common in that culture which right is, I, i've seen a lot of yeah but it, you know it's, it's common that but we didn't know that that was my yeah yeah it was just him and my mom mm -hmm. you know so so because of that, as a as a you know as a father and husband now, I don't ever want to put my wife and kids through that. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. to, to me, and part of, and that's what helps to keep me in check yep. up there. Yeah, you've seen the pain. That's why. Because yeah. I see the pain. I see the hurt. I see the the division. I see the stuff that happens in my family now, where certain siblings don't want to deal with other siblings because they were born in Africa and these other siblings were born in the UK. And it's, I'm just like, dude, like. <laughs> What are you talking about? So anyway, sorry for going down that tangent, but um, no, it's important. Road, it's an uh, important element to the story, yeah. which is, you know, when you when you experience pain and you go through these things that aren't even your own pain, yeah. it's it's a it's a great understanding. Like I, I and I'll, I'll digress a little bit too. I, I remember, I remember my my uh, my father um, having a relationship with another woman and yeah. being involved in the middle of this mm. melee. Yeah, and and. And understanding and recognizing that as yeah. a young child, yeah. and then looking at it myself, going, I don't want to be that. Yeah, exactly I, I don't yeah. want to be part of that. Yeah. And seeing it break down my 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 stepmother, who yeah. would never smoke, but started smoking, and she yeah. would shake because yeah. her nerves and her her spirit was so broken yes. because of that. Yes. And and those are the best. Um, those are the best memories yeah. that keep us grounded. Yes. And keep and us disciplined. Yeah, yeah, man. And and that's that's important because yeah. moving forward. Especially in your situation, where yeah. you know it's easy to find a slippery slope, it is. and it's easy to come off the the tracks yeah. with your message, with uh, your responsibility. You've got so much more to focus. No, on, absolutely. Right? And you know, I, I do a lot of stuff. I, you know, I work with a, a nonprofit called Single Hope Foundation. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I've been I've been giving back to to young inner city kids and kids. I mean. I mean, it started in the teens, you know, I was a youth pastor at a, at a, at a church and, uh, in, in San Diego, and that's where I really started working with youth. And so, you know, along with that, I have a responsibility to these kids, you know, every day. So if I mess up, they're going to see that. They're looking you know, up to you. Because yeah. a lot of them don't, most of them don't have dads. You know, so what's the name of the foundation? The Single Hope Foundation. So yeah. you can go donate. I hate to plug it, but you can go donate no, on singlehope.com. Um, we're trying to, you know, we provide hope to single parents. So it's singlehope.com yep. or foundation. Singlehopefoundation.com. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Com. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that kind of like diverts your attention. Mm -hmm. You have a new focus, a new purpose. Yeah. Where did you find the purpose 
for writing, for, <laughs> yeah. for everything that you're doing now yeah. out of that? And, yeah. and why have you chose that direction? Yeah, so um, when I signed my book deal in, in, uh, in, in 2017, August of 2017. So how does that work? Because for people who don't know, yeah. I, I know the complexities of yeah. that, and I know how hard it is to pitch yeah. and to get approved. Yeah. What did how, what was that process? It, it was easy. I went on a Today Show. It was Transformers kind of set it what? all up for me. So I so after I did Transformers, I was in it enough to be part of the press tour. Oh, okay. So I Got went it. on like you know you were promoting to, the movie, to, yeah, Today Show, yep. and Fox News, and you know all, Men's Journals all over the place. And uh, um, I went on the Today Show, and Kathy Lee Gifford, I, you know, I've been kind of connected to her family. I kind of mentored her son for, and I still kind of, he's like a good friend of mine, but I mentored her son early on. Um, and uh, after I shared my story on the Today Show, she was like, Remy, you need to write a book. And I was like, no. And she said, why won't you write a book? I was like, because, you know, stuff that goes on in the team. She was like, no, I know your heart. You're going to do it to inspire people. You need wow. to write. And she walked me to the publisher. Are you serious? She walked me to HarperCollins, the big one of the biggest publishers. HarperCollins Harper is the, Collins. one of the biggest. What? And she said, you need to sign this guy to a book deal right now. And that's how I got my book deal. So she literally <laughs> takes you and she walks you to the publisher. She, well, not literally walk, but she yeah. picked up the phone and said to the one of the VPs, "This guy has an incredible story. You need to sign him to a book deal." Wow. You know, um, I put it. You know, and he was like, "Let's do it." I put together wow. a quick proposal, and I signed my I signed my book deal with Harper Collins. That's amazing, yeah. man. And that's how it happened. That's, that's, right? that's, that's, that's how it happened. Yeah. And so um, when I signed the deal, I signed it as my mom being the writer mm -hmm. um, and, and it was like kind of like a I hate to say but it was a fear mm -hmm. that I couldn't handle this big project um, I let fear and this is a lesson I try to teach never let fear keep you from doing what you're supposed to do mm -hmm. whether it's your fear or someone else's fear and I, I did I let fear keep you from writing and my mom she wrote like the first two two three chapters and I read it and I was just like this is not me mm -hmm. that's your not, voice it's not my voice mm -hmm. I know that she was holding back certain things because you know she's a mom. She, she wants to protect, protect, protect you, yeah. her and protect herself and protect me as well. And and so uh, so after I read, I was like, I need to do this. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote. You know, I scrapped the first three chapters. I wrote. Then I, I started writing, and I just wrote, 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 wrote. And um, by December, I had half of a book already written. Wow. Man. And I turned it into the publisher, and they loved. They loved the what rawness. They, what they read. Yeah. yeah. But their the, their concern was that. The book, the way I was writing, it was going to be a two hundred thousand word book, which is like five hundred pages. Were you very expressive with details? And I, I was, but in my mind, I knew I was going to go back and cut stuff because the way I am as a creative, I need to get it all on paper. I need yeah, to yeah. see it. I can't. And once I see it, then I can. I'll know what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they, you know, they they said, uh, "Hey, we want you to hire a ghostwriter to finish the rest of this mm -hmm. book." And so I capitulated. I hired a ghostwriter, paid him ten grand, and then after a month, January. He sent me three chapters and I read them. And again, it wasn't me. Wasn't your voice? It wasn't my voice. Mm -hmm. He was like trying to talk a Jewish guy. No, no offense to Jewish people, but an old. No Jewish offense guy. to Jewish yeah, ghostwriters. No, yeah, no, no offense. No <laughs> offense, but an old Jewish guy trying to talk like a young black kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just wasn't working. And so you know, I, he read my work and he said, "Remy, you, you could do this. I don't know why your your agent and, and, and the publisher told you to hire a ghostwriter. You could do this." Wow, man. And he said, "I hate to lose this job, but you need to write this book." And so pretty much we parted ways. I remember I told the publisher and I know I'm giving you the roundabout answer, but I no, told I the love publisher this, man. and they freaked out. They was like, this, we're going to have to move the release date. There's no way you could write this book." And they and I was like, "I'm a frogman. I've come from hell mm. and back. I got this. You know my past." Yeah. I'm doing this. I can do this. And my due date was like in a month and a half. 
Wow. And, 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 and so, you know, I put the pedal to the metal. I didn't sleep. I didn't watch the Super Bowl. Went back to that discipline mode that I had when I was training to go to Buds the first time. And I, I finished my book a week before the due date. And, and, and I turned it into them. And they loved it. Wow. And, and, and to the point where I have the email to this day, the vice president was like, we didn't think you could pull it off. You're a gifted writer. Like, you need to keep writing. We, you know, we love what you wrote. And we didn't think this was going to happen. And that's, it was that email and going through all of that stuff that gave me the confidence where I was like, man, I can write. I need Damn. to be a writer. I, yeah, need to, yeah. I need to pursue this. And so that's how I got into, you know, writing other projects and writing film and this, uh, writing screenplays. And I wrote my first screenplay and I turned it in. I turned into some executives in the industry just to kind of get their people, you know, just to test the waters. Is this mm -hmm. something, yeah, am I yeah, on yeah, to something yeah. or is this just a fad, you yeah. know? And, and everyone who read it loved it, you know? You know, um, it's an it's espionage thriller, you know, and um, people loved it. And then finally, you know, I got signed with, for Zero Gravity because they read it and they were just, just like, this is, this is a film franchise and we wouldn't turn this into a big film franchise. I'm, so, seeing, I'm seeing a lot of parallels yeah. in like this, this, uh, this life of yours and this yeah. journey where it's almost like the phase one, you know, like the phase one is your life from Africa to the streets of the yeah. Bronx and then going through this process and then you get to the, your Navsoft career and yeah. you're doing the same thing yeah. where it's like you're testing the waters. Yeah. Literally in buds, you're testing the waters. Yeah. You're, you're trying to figure yourself out and you're, you're realizing that you have more talent yes. than you give yourself credit yes, for, which absolutely. is building your confidence. Absolutely. But once, once you realize you have the confidence in this phase three, just like you did in every other phase, yeah. you give it and commit to it yes. everything you have. Absolutely. Everything you have. Absolutely. And so people who don't understand the writing problem, I'm writing a book right now on yeah. mindset, and I actually hit up Remy about yeah, it. Whatever you need, I yeah, told man, you, let it's, me know, man. It, it, is a, it is the most difficult, because I'm a creative writer, yeah. so I, yeah. can, I, can, I can knock out creative writing. I'm very mm -hmm. good. But it's different when yeah. you write a book. Yes. It's because <laughs> you have to write it. Yeah. Um, to optimize it for a, a reader yeah. who doesn't understand exactly. where you're coming from. Yeah, you gotta sublimate it, yeah. It's crazy, man. And then and then what's next level, and, and my aspiration is to be a writer, and, yeah. I, and I, you know, I wanna be like you one yeah. day, but the next level of that is coming from a book to a script. Yeah, man. Because a script, <laughs> you have to understand the processes in which cinematography, videographers, yeah. producers, and everybody else disseminates that message and imagery. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. the way you write has to depict that, yeah. and it's completely different. And you have to do it 120 pages or less. Oh, my God. So it's kind of like you, you have to learn how to, how to say more with less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. a science. It's like a puzzle. Yeah. But uh, it, it, it works your mind. It kind of, it's like an exercise, a mental exercise. But I feel like you get that from your dad, like the engineer yeah. mind, the yes. analytical yes. mind, especially if you could convert the numbers into yeah. words. Yes. It, it, it fits in that dimension. 100%. Like that My brother, you know, he's an engineer. Um, brilliant computer science engineer. I have another half-brother, he's a doctor. <laughs> I, have a, I have another half-brother uh, who's about to go to med school. My sister just, my half-sister just graduated uh, her MBA, top MBA program in Chicago. Wow, man. My other half-sister's in the top MBA program in Ghana. That's awesome. And so my brother, he, he says this all the time. He says, you know, our dad didn't leave us a nickel, but the greatest thing our dad gave us was our minds yeah yeah through his dna that was, was these genetic minds and it's and our minds are more valuable than any millions that he could have left us that's amazing you know so i always found that like inspiring when every time he said that because he says it a lot you know so. yeah well and and 
Do you feel like your dad's with you through this process? Do you feel yeah. like you're, you're like living through him, his spirit? No, I am. I do. I do. I do. A hundred percent. You know, I feel like, you know, especially because I'm getting to tell his story. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people don't know his story. Yeah. A yeah. lot of people don't know what happened because he died. And a lot of people in Nigeria expected the story to die with him. Mm -hmm. But now the story is reemerging. So I truly feel that through this book and through my life, it's vindication and it's retribution it's legacy. for everything that happens. It's legacy. That's yeah. I, the the way, it, mm -hmm. like our brothers who are killed in combat, yep. the people who aren't here to tell their stories. Once that story is story is told, for the people who maybe experienced a snippet of that, yeah. it's 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 paved and it's and it's a, a a legacy. And that's the way that these people live on. Absolutely. And the fact that you could pay homage to that and yeah. and you know this it's a it's an amazing and beautiful tribute to your father yes, as sir. well, man. Yes, sir. I think it's awesome. So. Thank you. Now you're 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 navigating the civilian space, and yeah, your yeah. book's out, um, which is an amazing book for somebody who wanted to pick up that book. Let's just really quickly put it out. How yeah. how would somebody pick that up right now? Yeah, so you could so right now you could buy it at Barnes and Nobles, mm -hmm. uh, iTunes is everywhere, uh, Amazon.com, any bookstore. The book is out everywhere. So um, yeah. and the title with the top the whole title. Also, oh, the title is transformed is the main title, and the subtitle is. A Navy SEAL's unlikely journey from the throne of Africa to the streets of the Bronx to defying all odds. Oh man, yeah. I love that. That's Thank a good you. title, man. Thank you. I came up with that. <laughs> so, that's awesome. That's, I'm, I, when I look at titles that I've written, I'm like, yeah. oh my god, it's yeah. the hardest thing. Because for me, did you write your title before you wrote the book, or did you write the book and then fill the title? Uh, I was halfway through the writing process, and my publisher gave me a bunch of sub. Well, they came up with the title "Transform." I came up with the subtitle because mm -hmm. they wanted the subtitle to just be a man's odd, a, a man's odds, like unlikely odds. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, "There's That's no descriptive. Enough. There's yeah, no description yeah. in that." Like the... somebody's walking through a bookstore and they see "Transform," a man's odd, uh, unlikely odds, or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're gonna put the book down, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, Midway through, you decided this yeah. is. That's I wanted to be able to tell a story within the title that was appealing enough for people to be able to pick it up and say, "I want to read the rest of this book." I like that. You know, you you uh, you're now writing scripts yeah. for movies. Can you talk about that one script that you did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. Well, does the chameleon? Yeah, 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 yeah. The so, yeah, so the, the the script right now that's getting ready to go out to market, about to go out to studios. It's it's called the chameleon. It's my passion project. As a matter of fact, it's been in my head since man 2010. Um, since my second appointment, and uh, it's about an, it's about an unlikely kid from the South Bronx who, through you know, soft through uh, Army Special Forces, he was a Delta guy. Mm -hmm. He ends up finding his way into the CIA, mm -hmm. and uh, he gets into this program called the Chameleon Program, where he's trained to become whatever character he needs to become in order to get the job done. Wow. And part of the this specific mission that he has to he has to uh, has to um, do is is rescue somebody from themselves, an American who's now become a high-level terrorist uh, in, 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 uh, in, in East Africa. And, and he has a relationship with this guy, I won't give it, all, give it all away, but he has to go rescue him. So, so that's the chameleon, and uh, yeah, put a lot of hard work. And, and well, what we talked about too is, yeah. you know, when you do a story like that and you script write, yeah. and you've lived yes. some of those experiences, yeah. it's a different way of telling a story from somebody Who's researched that experience yeah, and then is regurgitating? I call yeah. them emulators. Yeah, like there's a difference between somebody who's living that and somebody who's emulating. That, oh, right? absolutely. And you know, the funny thing is, uh, I mentioned to, this to you earlier. I've read tons of scripts, like whether 
projects I'm getting ready to work on or projects I'm working on. And obviously, because of my background, I get thrown into a lot of these military or action film type projects. And I read it, I'm just like, there's like, why would you write? There's no authenticity there. There's no, like, that wouldn't happen like that. And that's what really began to galvanize, another thing that galvanized me to really want to write screenplays because I was like I could do this and I could do this way better than the guy who has never even yep. no business in writing that this fight yeah. no business <laughs> in writing know, that let man. alone a, a, a shootout you know so so yeah man yeah well you're what I've told you before is you're an outlier in that field because yeah. you have the unique opportunity with pad and pen mm-hmm. to be able to tell a story that represents the community Absolutely. do you take that as a as as a uh, you know as a aspect of the responsibility oh, and no, delivering absolutely. the message. No, absolutely. I, I, I really, one thing with these with these films that I'm writing, I want to honor mm. the men and women in uniform. Yeah. I want to honor them. I want to show, especially in this the, the chameleon I just talked about. There's there are scenes in there where I really show how much guys like you and George and, and myself and other guys, how much we give up to do the job sacrifice and also that. show uh, in, a, in a fictitious way you know how spe- specifically in our country and other countries how we are so protected mm-hmm. in ways that people will never ever 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 know yeah you know so I thought you know that would be cool to, if to they honor. only knew if they only, if they knew. only knew and if yeah. they knew they'd be you know be pissing different. themselves every day <laughs> <laughs> if they you know locking themselves in a the room so you know so yeah I do and especially with this other project I told you about this historical project I can't go into great detail but you know about you know one of the first groups of, of African Americans to serve in special operations you know that that's a story that hasn't been told and I want to be able to tell those kind of stories and you know also who knows how these films can inspire young people that want to serve well they inspired you they inspired yeah, me it's, exactly. it's, it's really a yeah. uh, mechanism and a messaging uh, that's that's missed Nowadays, Absolutely. for young men and women who yeah. want to, who want to be inspired, exactly, and uh, especially for a, a, a positive aspect of it, not the apocalypse now, Full Metal yeah, Jacket yeah, version, yeah. Of it, you <laughs> know, <laughs> which are great movies, but yeah, that yeah. inspire people to no, join not all, not and all. serve. Not at all. Do um, you have any regrets? Um, yes, I do. I have. I have. Um, and I've, and when I say that, I want to say that carefully. Like I'm not beating myself up against the head, you know, every day. Like, but the way I treated people. Um, uh, in my mid twenties, you know, especially as I got, I got power and, you know, I got the trident and, you know, I got in the community and I began to achieve success. You know, I treated people really, really poorly, you know, and, um, there was, there were, there are a few people in particular who I, I, I I wish that I could go back in time. If there's one thing people ask me, if you can go back in time, what would you change? And my answer is usually I want to change anything because if I did, I want to be where I'm at today. But mm-hmm. um, it would be the way I treated some people, mm-hmm. you know, but I have made amends with, with a lot of the, my mom being one of them. You know, I used to treat her horribly. I used to treat my brother horribly. Um, so I have been able to go back and make amends, but that would be probably be the only thing. Yeah. 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 When you look back at you know, your story and your journey through life, whatever phase that you're in, because yeah. you've evolved as a human being, What what's the most important, um, personally, what's the most important thing that you feel is to retain through that experience? What what, do you, what value do you see uh, in, in that enti- entire life experience that means the most to you at the end of days? When, 
on your last breath, in your yeah. last breath, when you recapture mm. all the moments that you live, why, why are you living? What's, what's, the, uh, what's the look back look like? The look back, I think it's twofold. One is, you know, I did the work. Mm. I, no one, you know, there they were people who came along the way and helped me mm -hmm. along my journey, but for the most part, I put in the work. Um, and, but what, what, what I would like people to, to say when I leave this earth is, this man inspired and change in me. He motivated change in me. He didn't take from me. You know, I have a saying that kind of came to my mind a couple weeks ago, you know, going through social media and I was just like, wow. I was like, social media is used in one of two ways. Either it's used to take likes, comments, followers, you know, boost people up, or it's to give inspiration, motivation, education, revelation. Yeah. And so I want to be known as a person who used every part of his being to give to this world tools and inspiration and whatever, maybe even if it was just a little push mm -hmm. that pushed that person over that edge that would allow them to get to where they wanted to be or where they needed to be, you know, their dream. So that, that's what I would, you know, that's what I live for every day, from writing to speaking to, you know, to even stuff with my family, you know, that's my goal, you know. Yeah, people need, uh, the world needs, the United States, yeah. we all need um, more men like you in your capacity to be able to share your experiences and your yeah. journey. Uh, even if it's just, like you said, just giving them that nudge, yeah, yeah. that one piece of information, yeah. that empathy, yeah, um, yeah man, I, uh, completely honored that I got the opportunity to interview on a podcast and I look forward to talking to you after. Absolutely. Um, I know the great success of this book is going to be yeah. uh, meaningful for a lot of people and then kind of looking back on that um, in the future, I look forward to interviewing in the future, man. Yeah, I appreciate here, it, man. I appreciate it, brother. It's an what, honor and a blessing. What's a, what's, a, what's a way that anybody who's listening to this podcast and wants to get a hold of you, what's some of the um, uh, social media uh, channels that you have. Yeah, so I'm on uh, Remy Adeleke, all social media platforms, R-E-M-I-A-D-E-L-E-K-E. -E -E, so you can find me and DM me. I, my, my assistant tells me, Remy, you need to stop responding to your DMs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I just, you know, people, I get some DMs, people, hey, I need help, you know, Sometimes I'm struggling, you know, yeah. suicide, this and that. So I try to answer as many as I can, but please don't take advantage of that, what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, all Remy Adelake. If you want more in information about my book, you can go to transformedstory.com. Tons of information there on, on the book. And if you want to pre-order it, or you know, if you want to order, well, pre-orders over now, but if you want to order it, just go to uh, uh, Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble's, whatever website you want to go to to purchase it. But yeah, that's where you can kind of get a hold of me. Awesome, man. Yeah. Remy, thank you for this uh, interview opportunity. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your service this country, Thank man. you for your service no, and everything man. you've done, yeah. my brother. I, and thank you for this platform, allowing me to share on your platform. Thank you, man. I look forward to having you back, man. Yes, sir. Thank you to Mighty Oaks. Yes, hey, guys, sir. this is the Phil Krause Survival Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we appreciate you all. Make sure you guys uh, pick up that book, and we'll talk to you next time. Yes, Later, sir. guys. Yes, sir.